Well, hey, everyone. It's good to see everybody, whether you're online or joining us uh, live at one of our campuses in person. It's great to see everybody. It's hard to believe, isn't it, that it's been almost a year to the day when all the crazy COVID happened, right? We're, we're, we're marking our coronaversary, right? And I know there's been so much you know, yucky stuff and pain and loss, but you know, there's been some really beautiful things too. There's been some really beautiful things happening all along. Um, I saw some spring flowers popping up through the cold, hard dirt the other day. And I was like, really? Wow. And it was a reminder that somehow, you know, over the last several months behind the scenes when none of us were paying attention, underground that seed, God was doing something with that seed, you know, and there was something going on there that maybe we didn't know. And I think the same thing is happening in our church. We're seeing it now. It's like, after being closed and shut down and all this stuff happening and all over society, we got, we're back in person and ministries are burgeoning and groups are blossoming and people's hearts are opening again in a fresh way. It's exciting to see. And almost a year, isn't it ironic or providential, almost a year to the day after we had to kind of stop having services, God has allowed us to be launching a brand new campus at Aberdeen, which is Soft launch is next weekend. And then on Easter, resurrection weekend, you know, we get to celebrate the birth of that new campus because God's already, um, you know, just a God of great comeback. So what, I don't know what's going on in your life, whether it's easier for you now or maybe it's really hard. And just, can I just remind you that God is a good, good God and he's always good. Even when you can't see it and there's something going on underground beneath the surface because that's just the kind of God he is. We're going to look at that today about what kind of God uh, we really have and why it matters so much. When my uh, daughter, I should say our daughter, Ellie, was little, I'm going to say maybe four or five years old, pretty little girl, um, she got sideways with mom. Okay, and I don't know, didn't know what to do with those angry emotions. So what does she do? She does what a lot of us have probably done at some time or other. She decided she's going to run away. And so she's fussing about that. And um, her oldest brother, Nathan, he's, he's always been kind of a sensitive soul. He heard her talking about, he's like, what are you doing? I'm going to run away. He says, he offers her, he says, would you like me to go with you? <laughs> and she's like, Sure, that sounds better than going by myself. So he comes along, he says, what about Bob? And she's like, sure, Bob's our dog. And so, so there go, pretty soon, there go the three of them, pack a little bag and they got some stuff. There go three of them, about 200 feet across the driveway, a little grove of trees, we got a patch of grass. And they sat down there in full view, we're watching out the window, this whole thing. They're eating grapes and hanging out there for probably a couple hours, but... After some time passed, I, I don't know what happened. Something changed inside of her. Um, maybe the anger melted or she forgot what it was about or maybe it was getting dark or she was hungry. I don't know. But pretty soon there came the three of them right back inside. Put their feet under that same old table that we call our kitchen dinner table and our family was back together again that night as we were the night before. Those kids, they've, they've grown up now. Um... But, you know, even, even when we grow up, this is still like the story of our lives, isn't it? Story of my life. I know it's, it's a pattern that has repeated itself in your life as well. 
We run. We run from our true home in God. We drift sometimes or we wander or sometimes we just flat out sprint and just try to get away as fast as we can. For all kinds of reasons and often we end up taking somebody with us. We're spending a few weeks looking very carefully at one of the most important and powerful stories that Jesus ever taught. It's a, it's a parable. It's a, it's a living example of something very important that he wants us to understand about a son who ran away and after a while, something changed inside of him and he came home. And the reason Jesus told that story and the reason we're soaking it up right now is because we want to be able to understand some of these truths about ourselves and about God and also this, that no matter how long we've been gone or how far we have gone or how well we have hidden the fact that we've wandered, we can all find our way back home to God. And in fact, that's the thing we really want. And each of us, each of us can do that. So we're calling this series Welcome Home. Welcome Home because it conveys some of those ideas of that warmth. And, and we're talking about, you know, some of us this weekend are coming back to a campus. And it's about a lot more than walking through some doors for the first time in a year for some of you. For some of you, you're coming home to God because you've wandered. Let's be honest. And we're launching an Aberdeen campus. And that's about a lot more than saying, hey, here's a new place you can go to church. It's a lot for a lot of people who live in that area. It's about coming home to the God they never knew or the God they left years ago or for whatever reason aren't walking with today. And Easter, we don't do Easter because it's a tradition that Christians are supposed to do. We do it to celebrate the hope of the resurrection that there's new life in Christ so people can hear that word and come home. That's why we're here so all of us, whether you're online today, on your phone or in your living room or joining us at one of our campuses today, it's remember the truth of the Bible says we're all like sheep who've gone astray. Each of us have wandered to our own way. We're prone to wander. You do it. I do it. We're doing it probably right now, but we can all find our way back to God. Jeremiah 29 says, if you, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me, kind of with all your heart, like earnestly, like let's go after this because God is our heart's truest home, whether we know it or not. Eventually, see what happens in every human who's honest is sit down and listen to your heart long enough. You don't even have to read the Bible. You can listen to your heart and God will speak to you that way and you'll start having some realizations just about what your experiences in life. You'll start having some of those realizations and something will change inside of you like what happened for Ellie. And that's what we're doing with each of these messages. We started by talking about some of the longings that we have in life where we finally say to ourselves, man, there's got to be something more. Like this can't be it. A leader from the third century named Augustine said, no one is more open to the truth than the person who has chased after and seen all the world has to offer and finally comes to ask, is this it? That's the longing, like the boy in the story had. And we all have these longings. What do we long for? We talked about how we long for purpose, to know I'm here for a reason. We long for love, like unconditional love. And the boy went trying to find it and sex hookups and one night stands and it left him empty. And we have a longing for meaning, like when life gets really hard and starts hitting you with the hard questions, like why is this happening to me? We long for those kinds of meanings. And what we concluded is that those longings are things that God put there inside of us on purpose as a way to draw us back to himself. 
They're like breadcrumbs he leaves in the woods of this old world. And if we'll follow them, they will lead us straight to him because it is only God who will ultimately provide that fulfillment that every one of us longs for. Which is why the next realization is one of regret, where we start wishing we could have a do-over. I wish I could, I wish I, I could just start over. And Kirk last week took us into the pig pen with Ms. Bacon. We had a pig out here, right? And it was a way of saying, we've got to listen to our regrets because they're trying to tell you something. And so this week, we're realizing finally our need for help. When we say, I, 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 you know, I just can't do this on my own. You all know I'm from Minnesota, or as we sometimes say, Minnesota, right? Because um, let's just admit it. If you know me well, you know I'm a snow snob. Which means, basically, every time it pretends to snow around here, I roll my eyes and I say smug, you know, arrogant things about how this isn't real snow and people don't know how to drive in it and blah, blah, blah. And it means that my family, my wife particularly, rolls their eyes because they're so sick of hearing me talk about what real snow is really like. And it also means that, that um, when it snows, if it ever does get over five, six, seven, eight inches, I suddenly find errands to run. It means I'm in my car and I'm like, do you need help? I can go get something. I can bring something by because for me, that's when the fun begins. I want to be out and it's showing the world that I can handle anything because after all, I'm from Minnesota, right? And so a couple years ago, um, our family went to Minnesota uh, after, for Christmas break and um, the rest of the family went home and Andrew and I went up to northern Minnesota and they're like, are you sure you want to do that? We're like, of course, no problem, I got this. They're thinking, well, it's 15 below. There's a ton of snow and more coming. I'm like, no problem, I got this. And so up we went. And in fact, the snow gave me an opportunity to demonstrate for my son some of my prowess behind the wheel. And this give him a few tips about driving in snow, you know? So off we go, and one night we're driving around. I go to this church parking lot, and I'm doing donuts in the parking lot, you know, and I'm really impressing him, I'm sure. And we're getting ready to leave, and I pull out of the church parking lot, and I'm going a little too fast as I come around the service road, and I slide, and at first I think, oh, this is great, I'm going to really impress, and then I swivel and I swerve, and the two wheels dropped off the edge of that road down a pretty sharp ravine, and... I got stuck. No problem, though, because I got this. I, this happened a hundred times. I know exactly what to do. I get out and I do all those little tricks and the things that you do, and you know, and, I, and, I, and it didn't really help. And 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 I was sort of stuck. But I, no problem. I got, I got this. I've been I've been in this situation before. I, I know what to do. Um, I, I, I tried those things, and 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 they didn't work either. Um, so all we need is a shovel because if you have a shovel, then you can dig out the, these tires and then pack behind these. And, and so I, I sent Andrew walking all the way back to the, to, the, to the house to get a shovel and he brought it back. By the, and I went to work digging in my hands and I'm digging here and I'm digging there. My hands are frozen and it's getting later and later. And he comes back with a shovel. I had already failed three or four times now. I'm still thinking in my mind, I think I got this. I'm pretty sure I got this. We went to town with the shovels and we dug and, you know, you kind of dig in the front and then you push in the back and then, and then it's like, okay, push when I tell you and I rock it a certain way. And every time I did, it just got deeper and deeper and deeper into that ditch. The more I tried, everything I knew to do, the worse it got. My hands were frozen. Back is aching, feeling bad about Andrew. And I finally had this realization that I might have to do that thing that, you know, you have to do sometimes when you when you, uh, when, when you have to ask 
um, for um, help? Anybody struggle with asking for help? I called, I called the pastor of the church, and he, pretty soon, someone was there with a pickup truck and hooking chains on her out, and a couple of yanks, there we were out there, and I was so relieved and so grateful, and I, I realized as we were driving very safely home, um, I'd still be stuck if I hadn't asked for help. Do you know a time when you had no other choice but to ask for help? Maybe, maybe you're in one of those right now. It's really the way life is. And the, the problem is, whether you admit it or not, in certain ways, we're all kind of like I was that night. Like, I got this. No problem. Right? We love to think of ourselves as super competent. Like, like there's just no, I'm, I, I know what to do and handle this. This is no problem. And sometimes we get ourselves in a ditch. And I don't care who you are. Some, there are some ditches you can't get out of. There are loads we can't lift. I hate admitting this, but there are relationships I can't fix. There are people I can't change. There are habits that you just can't kick on your own just like that. I don't care who you are. It's true of you too. There are hours you cannot sustain. There are loads you cannot lift. There is stress you can't take. There is output you can't produce. There are limits. You are finite. There is hurt that you can't absorb. There are problems you can't solve. You can't always dig out on your own. And it comes to the point where I don't care who you are, what kind of superman or woman you think you are, when you try everything, everyone realizes eventually, I think I need some help. That's why the first step in the 12-step thing, I don't know if you know what it is. You know what it is in the 12-step recovery thing? It's we admit that we are powerless over our addiction. And we could just say that about life. You admit that we are powerless and insert whatever you want about the problem that you think you can fix that you haven't fixed yet. Because God didn't make you to be God. He made you to worship God. He didn't make you all-knowing and all-powerful with endless resources. God made you to say, you are God and I am not. And right now, I need your help, God. And that moment when we finally come to it, is really important when we ask God for help. In fact, it's important to think, do you ask God, where do you turn for your help? Where do you turn? I mean, that's the important question. So, I ask for help. Do you ever ask for help? James 4, verses 6 and 7 says, this is the key to us inviting God into the beautiful space of our life so he can work. It says he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, and he's quoting from Proverbs here, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Back in that snow. As long as I was stuck in my pride, I was stuck, right? So think about your pride. Is your pride holding you back from the help that God can give? When I humbled myself, I opened the door for God to step in. You want to keep God at arm's length? Keep your pride up. 
It, it, God resists that. That'll keep God out of your life if that's what you want. It's an, that attitude is a God repellent. Keep insisting, my drinking is not a problem. This gambling is not a problem. My anger is not a problem. That's pride that keeps God away. There's no room for God to work in that. You know, my, my depression is not really an issue. I've got this. My laziness is not a problem. My procrastination is someone else's fault. My spending is not out of control. My insecurities that grip me and make me timid about stepping into the things I'm called to do, those are not really an issue. This parenting thing and whatever, what, I, what appears to me to like a pit in my stomach is really not my fault. The relationships that fail, the money that I struggle with, the lust problem I have, the health problem I can't overcome, the, the shame and the guilt piling up, none of it is really a problem. I got this. See, keep saying that, and what you do is you sort of just keep stiff-arming God to keep him out of your life because he opposes the proud, but he steps in when we humble ourselves and say, not I got this, but I need you. What are you spending most of your time saying to God? I got this? Or I need you? Because that's the fundamental realization It's the difference between us spinning our wheels through a cycle of like, I'm going to try this and then failure and then shame and try this and then failure and then shame and then try. We can get out of, we can stop spinning our wheels, get out of the ditch when we say, I need you and reach for the Lord for help and opens up beautiful space. We can say with the psalmist in Psalm 54, God is my helper. God is my helper. He's the one who's keeping me alive. So where do you turn? Friends, we got to be honest because sometimes I think people are saying today in society, maybe you are too. Netflix is my helper. My gym workout is my helper. My sleeping pills are my helper. I eat a box of cookies and that's my help. Where do you go to feel better? Where do you go when you've got the stuffings kicked out of you to get your head on straight? Where do you go? Where do you turn? How do you get back on track? How do you get realigned when, when someone's really just punched you in the gut? Where, where do you go to get back on? When, when, when you're stuck, when you're scared, when your kids are off track, when something's gone haywire, where do you go? You can say, my friend, God is my help, my go-to. God is my help. That's what I think we're meant to say. And what the Lord, I think, wants you to hear today is a message from him. And in, Psalm, in Isaiah 41, it just says these comforting words, fear not. Someone needs to hear this today. I'm the one who helps you. And I think we need to pay attention to what's going on. COVID's been really hard. It's been very difficult. A lot of stuff going on right now. So maybe just ask this question. How is God using COVID, do you think, in your life to move you toward him? What's, all, what, what's going on? And, and I'd like you to think about that as you think about your own story. And then listen, if you will, to the story of our friends, we're coming back to visit. If you've been with us in previous weeks, we're going to hear a little bit more of the story we've been hearing each week from our friends Carrie and Brandon. I spent a lot of time in meditation and practicing spiritual things that would be considered like the New Age movement. But when my grandmother died, this guy reached out to me. He even invited me to like a group of people that were into what I was into the spirituality that I was into that came to Jesus. Wait, I thought I was walking with God all this time. Luis and I get reunited after being away from each other since high school. It's when things got real. 
We got married. We moved to Japan. That's where the military moved us. And we were coming back to the States, to Texas. That's where we were going to live for the next two years. And even before boarding the plane, we knew the moment we make it to Texas, Luis was going to be deployed. He was going to war. How am I going to survive with two little ones in a new town with no family? And the guy, he mentioned to me, like, dude, all you need is Jesus. He's like, if you're trying to connect with God, you need to know Jesus. There's no other way. And to be honest, a lot of spirituality is just evil. Like, you're going to experience some spiritual darkness in that, and I bet you already have. And in fact, I had. And that night when I went to bed, I had a dream. I felt darkness and completely alone. I felt like I was surrounded by, like I was surrounded by something evil. All this time, I've been counting on Luis to be that spiritual strength and the person that I will go to when I'm struggling with something, whether it's fear, anxiety, or trusting anyone. And at this point, I see it as God was removing him from the picture to have one-on-one -on -one time with me. Because I quickly realized, wait, I can't do this alone. I felt lost, scared, anxious, and confused. In the meantime, these people in the chat, they're still sharing their testimonies, like I'm reading that. And strangely enough, like God had spoke to them through dreams as well. And they were sharing that. And I didn't even tell them any of this that happened. The next night, I had another dream. It, I was in New York City. I was completely surrounded by fire. And there was these disgusting looking demonic beings everywhere. There's no other way to put it. Like, that's just what I seen. And without going into too much detail, I was tortured for what seemed like forever. Like, it, it felt like this dream never ended. And when I woke up from that, I, I knew something was wrong. Like, I, I knew Jesus, like, has to be the way. Um, I just knew it in my heart at that time. Like, all these things that I had experienced and what God was trying to show me, I was finally ready to accept. And I, I couldn't deny it anymore. The biggest struggle in battle was trying to, I think it was trying to negotiate with God. How about you do this and I do this other thing? It turns out that the more time I spent with him trying to change his mind, he changed mind. He changed mind. Uh, so I went from, I, I got to figure this out to, I don't need to figure it out. He knows it all. Like, I felt horrible, you know, um, that this whole time while I was trying to seek God, I was mocking him. And I just, I dropped to my knees and I just asked God to forgive me. And I 
just like bawled my eyes out. And I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior because I, I just knew, I knew he was the one truth and I knew that I needed him. It was the first time I had really felt the presence of God, like when I accepted Jesus. And it was overwhelming. Like I felt a weight lift off of me and I felt liberated truly for like the first time. It was a moment of realization of what my limitations were and God's power. It was a time where God had to break down my pride again and let me lose control of things. And that after all, what was most important was my relationship with him. So whether your deal is sort of like Carrie's, where you're like realizing you don't have as much control as you thought, or maybe it's like Brandon's and you're literally up against demonic forces. The point is that it's our need and realizing that we need help that can ultimately drive us to God. And what happened in their lives is what happens in really all of our lives if we allow it to. And it's what happened in the story that we've been looking at. And so let's dive into the text now. Luke chapter 15. It begins by saying a father had two sons and one of them comes and gets run away from home and he gets stuck. But it begins by him saying, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Now, we got to pause there and just make sure that we realize how bombastic that request would have been, especially in that culture. Utterly unheard of. Because remember, in that culture, you honored your father and your mother. And the way you did that is you took care of them until they died, hopefully in their ripe old age. And then they would pass on their inheritance to you. And the way it worked is the older son got taken care of first. He got the double portion. In this case, it would have been, he would have gotten two thirds of the estate. The younger son at death would have received one third. So when this son goes to this father and he flippantly says, I want mine now, what's he saying? He, he was disgracing himself. He was dishonoring his father by saying, I don't love you, father. I don't love you for you. I, I want what you can do for me. And what I really want is not to be here with you. Is I think the best life is not even here. So give me money now so I can get out of here. You're as good as dead to me, dad. And so he didn't just destroy the honor of the father. The other thing to realize is that he brought great disgrace and damage to the entire community because this is a very communal culture, right? In those days, farmers didn't live in isolation like we might think of today when you drive by and see a farmhouse. They would never put a, a house on farmable land. Instead, they lived in a community, in a village, in houses, usually in a circle. They'd come out and see the same people every day of their lives, right? And then you'd go out and farm in the fields during the day and come back to that tight-knit community. And they would help each other and shared a lot of assets. And so when the father says, yes to this bombastic request, he's got to liquidate his estate in order to give at least a third of it away. And it affected everyone in the village when he did that. You can guarantee he maybe had to sell a cow that other people were using to get their milk. Or he had to let go a servant that was employed by the next door neighbor. 
It sent these destructive ripples throughout the entire tight-knit community, especially this idea of shame. Kenneth Bailey, who has studied ancient Near Eastern culture for decades and has traveled all over those cultures, which are to some degree still unchanged today, says that this request in this story that the son brought would never have happened. He's asked this question hundreds of times all over the world in those kind of cultures. Would a younger son ever come asking for his inheritance early? And the answer is always the same. No, never like ever, it would not happen. And when he presses and says like, well, what would happen if a son ever did? And they think for a minute and they say, the father would, would say absolutely not, probably beat him or, or, or maybe disown him. And yet here's this boy who takes off with this money that the father gives him and he manages to waste the entire inheritance, decades and decades of wealth in a, in a matter of, I don't know what, months, a year, I don't know, blowing it all on you know, booze and sex and whatever else, wild living. Verse 14 says, after he had spent everything, like it's gone and that's the way our pursuit of pleasure goes, that we think it's going to bring it and then it's gone. It says there was a severe famine in that whole country. So it's pandemic time or it's, you know, think, think of, you know, it's a time of death and, and murder and every lawlessness, right? And it says he began to be in, what's the word? Need. And there's our word. He's starting to feel it for the first time. That's when he finds himself with Miss Bacon in a pen and filled with regret. And he begins to wake up. As verse 17 says, when he came to his senses, like he had a little bit of an awakening there. And he begins to say, man, my, my father's hired servants are doing better than I am. I'm starving to death here. I know. I'll go back home. And he starts saying, Father, this is what I'll say. Father, I, I know I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. He's going to cover all his bases. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I know that's off the table. But could I come on maybe as one of your hired servants and sleep in the barn? Have you ever had one of those tough conversations where you're, you're just like so nervous about saying the right thing in the right way that you rehearse it? That's what this son is doing. He's practicing this groveling spirit. Speech, and this kid is rightfully so scared to death to go home because he's shamed his father. He's angered the village. Now in that culture, if a Jewish boy like this actually squandered family wealth like that among the Gentiles, no less, gave up part of resources that belonged to Israel and now commissioned them over to, to, to the Gentiles, that was an abomination. And if he dared to come home, there is no way he's ever going to be received back home. You just need to feel that. In fact, they had this ceremony that they had to powerfully convey their rejection of him if this kind of a son ever dared to come home and how he would be cut off. The Talmud, a Jewish book of, of law, tells about this Jewish ritual and says if this boy goes home, they're going to perform the ritual called kezazah. Kezazah. Why don't you try saying that, that word a couple times? Kezazah. Kezazah, right? Kezazah was a graphic gesture to send a message to someone like this who had dishonored the community. What would happen is the townspeople, the townspeople would walk out to the edge of the village where the son might try to come home. And they would meet him out there with pots like this and pitchers and things that that they had made and they would fill it with like putrid smelling burnt nuts and things like that, symbols of their life and their livelihood. And when they saw that son come at the city limits, they would, they would stand out there and greet him with stern faces and then hold these pots over their head like this and stare him down and then they would throw them violently to the ground. 
with a crash like this. And it would say, Kazaza, Kazaza, Kazaza. It was a way of saying, you have broken trust. You have broken relationships. You've broken your father's heart. You have disrespected this community. And these pieces, these shards are a reminder that your life is beyond repair. That, that there are some things that you have broken that cannot be fixed. You are not welcome, kazaza. You ever feel like that? Like something in your life is in pieces or maybe your whole life. Like there's something that's been broken beyond repair. Maybe it's the shame that you feel over something you've done or something that was done to you. Or a marriage that you helped mess up. Or kids that you feel you helped mess up. Or a purity that you've had in the past that feels like a distant dream right now and it just feels more like these pieces. Kazaza. Kazaza. This is why I think a lot of people don't think about going back to God because they, they think they know that if they ever did, they would be met with that kind of ritual. Kazaza. I'll just get piled on with guilt. I'll, I'll, I'll be feel even more ashamed. All we ever hear is kazaza. And that's why I think people would look at just about anything they can look at other than God for their help. They'll try just about anything other than Jesus for their hope. They'll, they'll go just about anywhere other than church for the thing they're really hungry for because they're so sure that all they're going to hear is kazaza. And that's where this boy is. And he's so desperate that he decides to give it a shot because it's the only shot he has. And when you find yourself in that position and you dare turn toward home, everyone's leaning in now to say, well, what's going to happen? And of all the scenarios this boy had played out in his mind when he's rehearsing that speech, heading home, knowing he's going to find a bunch of broken pots in the road, the, 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 the scene that he never could have imagined is what he saw next. Verse 20 says that he got up and went to his father. And I don't know how long it took him to get there. But verse 20, verse, part B says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Why was his father looking? Would he have a shotgun ready to, to shoot at him? What, what, what? Why was his father looking? And then Jesus answers the suspense in the next part of the verse by saying, because his father was filled with compassion. It's like, wait, what? What kind of father is this? Doesn't he care about his honor? Doesn't he care that he was humiliated? Doesn't he care about the, the community, about the son who hurt him so bad? And what Jesus says next is even more outlandish. Look at the last part of verse 20 says that this father ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. What is, what, 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 what is Jesus doing here? Remember, Jesus is talking to a bunch of sinners and he's trying to give a picture about the heart of God. He's trying to help everyone understand something about God. Because the father in the story represents God, represents your heavenly father and mine. And what Jesus is saying here is a bit of a head scratcher. He says, God runs. God runs. The word run there is the word that would normally be used in an athletic contest. So the father sprinted, the father raced toward his son. 
And you need to understand that in Middle Eastern patriarchal culture, that did not happen. Men had dignity. Men had authority. Men did not run. They walked. Aristotle, in fact, said great men never run in public. And one reason is they'd have to gather up their, 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 their skirts, you know, their robes, and re- reveal their naked legs, which was considered shameful in that culture. In fact, probably should be considered a little more shameful for some of us in this culture. But his father, to everyone's shock, runs. Why? Because he's a good, good father. Because he can't stop thinking about his broken boy. Because he knows if the village gets to the boy first, it'll be Kezaza, and he may never get him back. I might lose him forever. And so this father who's waiting and watching sees his son, has compassion, and he takes off in full stride. He's running, he's racing, hair blowing back, robes hitched up, legs sticking out, sandals flopping, necklace jangling, beard in the wind. Can you see it? He doesn't care what the rules are. He doesn't care what people think. He doesn't care who's watching. All he cares about is that boy and getting his arms around him and kissing him again and again so he can say, welcome home. And that, Jesus wants you and me to know, is a picture of, of your heavenly father and my father, because we're like that boy. We get in a spot where we disobey, we disappoint, we we just need help, and the world is going to kick us to the curb and give us nothing but kezaza. But you have a father who waits and watches, and when you make a move toward home, he sees you with compassion, and he will run. Some of you have been running. You just need to turn your heart toward home and let the father greet you. And the one who was humiliated on a cross for us now, Jesus himself, doesn't demand that you be humiliated for what you've done. He has taken the humiliation on himself. God has brought the shame and the iniquity and all of the bad kezaza brokenness into Christ himself. And the relationships that we ruptured, he has and will restore when we turn to him in faith and say, I need your help. My friends, help has a name and his name is Jesus. And this is what we call good news. And this is why this church is here. And this is why God gave us the Bible so that you and I can do what Hebrews says. You can come boldly, not shyly, not not fearfully, not tomorrow. Today you can come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. And there you will receive his mercy. And you will find grace to help us when you need it the most. And friends, it all begins when we humble ourselves and turn toward home. You know, all this humbling stuff falling in our father's arms and all of that. Uh, Maybe it's one of the reasons Jesus loved the image of baptism so much. Because, you know, Jesus was baptized. He says, go baptize all my disciples and all of that. Maybe it was because it was an initiation that reminded him, maybe, I don't know, of the embrace of the father. It's not sharp, jagged shards. It's warm water enfolding us. And the only way you get in is by humbling yourself. If you're ever, when you get baptized, you don't baptize yourself. In fact, you vulnerably let someone else just, you hope they don't hold you under. And you just kind of 
trust them and humble yourself. It's a symbol of weakness and it's a way of falling into the arms of God and feeling that watery enfolding. Some of you probably need to humble yourself before God and some of you need to show that through baptism. And Easter is two weeks away and so I, I think it'd be a great time for you to be baptized. If you want to humble yourself and say, I need God and I'm ready to be baptized. You can text the word baptism, just like you see on the screen to the number you see there. We'll, we'll get back to you and help you with that. In the meantime, the good news of Jesus Christ is that we can turn toward him and find a father like the one in the story. So let me leave you a prayer you can pray. We're going to sing a song in a moment. Um, the band's going to help us through some powerful words that can be like a prayer for you. And maybe these are some of the words you could use. Lord, I need you. Help me. Lord, I need you. Help me. Some of you need to come home to Christ. If you're already solidly home in his embrace, you've, you're not even wandering right now. Maybe this is a prayer for you. God, I need your help with, and you can name that area in your life where you know you need his help. For all of us, may this teaching break our heart for anyone who's living outside the love of Christ so that we'll be compelled to invite and love and reach and bring someone with you, maybe to Easter, so they can also come home. Pray those prayers, if you will. Lord, I need you help me. God, I need your help with as we pray together now and then hear this song. Let's pray. Lord, we can't even comprehend your love for us. Help us admit our need and run into your grace so you can put the pieces back together and use us for your purposes. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.